another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by Funkinsliff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfine, musicologist and author of Everything's on the One, the first guy to funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. Whether you're watching the video version of this at Funkinstuff.net or on YouTube or listening to the audio-only podcast version from providers like iTunes and Spotify. As always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives. All kinds of goodies you'll get uh, early premieres, and it's all free, so make sure you sign up. Tell a friend, tell family. Also get your official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff gear at the FunkinStuff.net store. Cool stuff like I'm wearing right here, Truth and Rhythm shirts, Show your support and love of the show and also the musicians and the music that they represent. Um, also want to give a shout out to the Funk Exhibition Center and Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm very proud to be an official Funk Ambassador. Go to thefunkcenter.org to learn more and keep the funk alive. And now, with all that, it's time to get on with the show. Enjoy. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership keyboardist singer Fred Mills, a member of notorious funk queen Betty Davis's 1970s band. He contributed to her classic recordings that bridged the rock funk influences of Jimi Hendrix, Sly Stone, and Janis Joplin, and also toured with the controversial icon. Davis, whose last name came from a short marriage with jazz legend Miles Davis, released three blistering albums in the first half of the 1970s, but her raw sounds and overt sexuality relegated her to cult status. By the end of that decade, she abandoned her music career seldom to be heard from again. However, through the years, her status grew, such that today she is considered a trailblazing legend. That story is told in 2017's documentary, Betty, They Say I'm Different, which also features my guest. Fred, how are you? Get in there, my brother. How you feeling? I'm feeling well, especially considering you know all we've been seeing this crazy year. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. How you been holding up? Well, I had a couple of uh, health challenges over the last years, but uh, right now I'm doing a lot better. Can't complain. You know, just moving one day at a time. Yeah. Well, certainly glad that you're with us today and. Uh, you know, much appreciate all the music you've given us and uh, look forward to getting into it with you. Here. So going to go way back for starters, Fred, and, uh, you know, rewind it before, you know, way before Betty Davis. How did you uh, first get into music and what drew you to keyboards? 
Well, <clears throat> I'm in the place where we're, we're, we're taping in my hometown, which is great, Reedsville, North Carolina. And I started on the saxophone, almost on the saxophone. But uh, it was a situation where a friend of mine, Betty's cousin, had a band. And I would go up and play his bongos in the band. And uh, I got on their nerves. So they told me what we really need is a sax band. So when school came back in, I joined the band. And I learned to play the scale on the sax, and I quit. And I started playing sax. And that was, that was basically my start. Uh, keyboards, I just had a, uh, you know, I just had a thing I wanted to do, play keyboards. And um, I had a gig at the church. I could practice on the keyboards if I made the five for Sunday service down in the water. And uh, I'd have the windows open on Sunday. <laughs> It'd be so hot. So that, that was really my uh, start until uh, Nikki's, Nikki Neal's father had a club called the Teenage Club. And he would let us, he bought all the equipment and uh, he would let us play in the Teenage Club. And then we go to different other clubs, and that that was it. You know, my early beginnings. What uh, alto or tenor sax, or which one were you playing? That's the funny story. <clears throat> I started on the alto, and uh, I was I didn't have a sax, so I would borrow the saxes from the uh, school. And one day I went we had a gig, and I went to get a sax, and it was no altos it was all tenors so i took the tenor i get to the gig and it comes time for me to hit and i'm like whoa what is wrong with that and i'm fingering like it was the alto and, and not realizing it was in a different key <laughs> so i never played the alto again <laughs> i asked you because i'm an alto player myself and my son who's 15 now he's he's playing my sax that i used to play <laughs> Is he as good as you? Well, he's working. I, I think he's going to surpass me, to tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to, you know, get him uh, rooted in some funk. You know, that's my job. Um, it's, it's right on time for funk, too. Yeah. So, you know, I'm in North Carolina as well, although I'm not from here originally, but I do enjoy it out here. been here since uh, 2006. And... Um, what kind of uh, music were you playing early on? You know, who are some of your heroes and, and influences that way? I was a, I was a James Brown, Wilson Pickett. Oh, uh, God. Who else? Uh, that kind of music until I got in about the 11th or 12th grade and uh, Slash Stone. I, I mean, Sly Stone just took me away, you know. So I, I, I like all of the Sly Stone stuff, and uh, it was Sly Stone, Buddy Miles, the Isley Brothers, Jimi Hendrix, all, all that type of music. And then I went into the service in 1969. I went to the Army, and I was I had just graduated high school, and uh, after going to Vietnam twice, I came back 
and I had a I had a friend, uh, Simi Neal, who was Nikki, and they had a band, and the trombone player, uh, Tyrone Jefferson, was in the band at A and T, and and so all he ever really wanted to do was James Rocket played trombone. He wanted to take Fred's place, and he did eventually. He he was he was James Brown's last uh, music director before he died. Now, he's probably right around the corner from you because uh, all of these cats, that's what I was leading up to. What changed my whole thing was when I went to Charlotte after I got out of the service. So I went with them because uh, they, they had graduated A&T. And uh, I had, you know, I met so many guys, man, that musically opened, opened me up, you know. I would do the, they drew to me because they liked the way I entertained or they liked the, the, the energy that I had. But musically, they were somewhere else, you know. Uh, the progressions, the chords, the artists, Amar Jamal, uh, uh, Chick Korea, you know, all of they introduced me to all of that stuff. Uh, and so, I began to experiment and learn at the same time. Because if you don't make a mistake, you're not gonna ever learn, you know? So that was Juicy Carter and uh, Juicy Carter and uh, Cannon McClure. They played on the, uh, they played on the, uh, Alma Brothers Fillmore album. Mm -hmm. And so I got to know all of those cats. We'd go to Macon and just, you know, we had a gig down in Florida. We stopped in Macon and hang out with uh, with all the Alma Brothers and with J Mo. We were tighter with J Mo, the drummer, because we all knew him and we'd go over his house and, and hang out. And that gave me a little thing about the you know, about the Almond Brothers thing and uh, Dickie and them and Derek and all of those cats from playing. But uh, we was in Florida. We were in Florida in Lakeland. And Nicky called me and he said, hey, man, uh, you want to you gig with my cousin? I say, who's your cousin? He said, Betty Davis. I said, who is that? And uh, he sent me, he said, hey, look, what I'm going to do, man, I'm going to send you an album and stuff. He sent me the album. I look at the picture. I called him. I said, yo, man. <laughs> and that's that's how we uh, sort of kind of got together. She was using Larry Johnson, who was her cousin. Me, Larry, and Nikki all grew up in the same town, Reedsville, North Carolina. And we were all doing different things. And uh, all of a sudden, after like maybe 10, 10, 5 or 10 years, we were together in New York for the first time with Betty. Wow, interesting path to how that ended yeah, up it, happening. It, you know, when I, when I, I'll be 70 in four months. And... Uh, when I look back on it, 
you know, it's almost like you can see it. It's almost like you're looking at it uh, in, in a movie, but it's your life. And uh, you, you just want to edit. So <laughs> you want to edit so much stuff, but it's done. And uh, most, of the, most of the things that has happened to me have been being in the right place at the right time, knowing the right people, uh, accepting what you couldn't do and what you can do, you know. And I never, I never even dreamed of, of, of being in, in Paris, in London, in France, uh, in, in uh, Ireland, and playing, you know, playing at Ronnie Scott's club in London, the most premier jazz club in the world. And uh, and we weren't even playing jazz, <laughs> but uh, you wake up one day and Larry Graham is, you know, said, "Yo, get him to catch the backstage passes." And you've been listening to Larry with Sly for years, and and you're doing gigs with George Clinton, Bar Kelly, uh, Bar Kays, uh, you know, all all of these different artists, Bootsy. And you're having conversations with guys, and you think about it, it's like, hey, man, I'm from Reedsville, North Carolina. You know, a lot of those guys have an edge on you because they come from big cities, mm-hmm. and big music is around, you know, uh, in, 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 uh, in Cincinnati and different places, in L.A., San Francisco, New York, North. but North Carolina is kind of strange because North Carolina it's one of the, the eastern part districts that a lot of music is, is, is circulated down this way. You know, it comes from up there, it comes from out there. And, uh, you know, we end up being a, a huge asset to the uh, music industry when it comes to, like, what sounds good. And they may take a, a portion of this because if you travel, like we were traveling, Every different city you go in, in a different state, got a different top ten, right. you know. And so the one thing about it is that the only funk you hear is breakthrough, you know. It's not, they don't market funk like they market R&B, you know. Funk is, uh, it's like our little club, but it's so infectious. I mean... George Clinton, to me, is the greatest of all time. <laughs> I mean, the, and the reason I say that is that, okay, George had multiple groups. Outside of that, he had his own language. Uh, you know, he, he, he created and then the album covers that were that were done, the concept, and Bootsy say, "Well, I'm down," and George say, "Well, once you get this off the ground, I'll help you." And then here comes Bootsy, then here comes the Parlets, then here comes the uh, 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 the Brides of Funkenstein, and then you had Bernie Warrell doing his thing, and. Uh, and and Fred doing his thing, you know, greatest horn section ever. When when it was uh, Rick, uh, 
Fred and Mazio. Good God, that you couldn't you couldn't find a better one. <laughs> but I, I put I put George on top because uh, I went to see him on Betty's birthday in Greensboro, North Carolina, uh, July the twenty sixth. And he was in the amphitheater outside with um, uh, those crazy guys. I can't think Last of Last summer? Yeah. I was there. Uh, yeah, I was at that show with Fishbone and uh Right, that's what Galactic. I was trying to think of Fishbone. I was yeah, like in I, the uh, second row or something like that. Hey, I was in the, uh, I got a picture of me and George talking backstage and, and it had that Mercedes uh Van, that big long tall van, but uh, yeah, I talked to him and I and I was saying, Joy, I said you crazy. I mean, you, did you remember how he was he was squat down? Yeah, you know, be sinking down and 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 he had to get in the chair after that. But all that silver stuff he had on, all that silver leather and everything, and he back and forth and doing his thing, man. And I say, boy, you're too old for that. And he just laughs. But I, I think as a businessman, in the early beginnings, he, he got taken advantage of. Uh, but he kept going. And he kept, you know, to, to making it happen and doing this and doing that. And he was, using, he was using guys that he knew that could make it happen. He couldn't do it all himself. He had to... He had to uh, do business and stuff like that. And then as as the years go on, people be like, well, dang, man, we made a whole lot of money. You know, we did. It, 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 it took a minute for that kind of thing to seep in because uh, after, after, Betty's, after Betty's thing, I went to uh, New Jersey. I went to Plainfield, New Jersey. And uh, I did some playing up there, and I ran into a guy from Virginia that I knew, and we got they were the horn section, and the name of the horn section is Chops, and they do all the oh, stuff. Yeah. In the Daryl Dixon. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, the story I'm giving to tell you, Daryl told me. <laughs> so it was Daryl, Dave, Marvin, and Booney, and they needed somebody to write songs. So I wrote all the songs for the Chops album, and and I co-produced it with Marvin. But uh, I was asking Daryl, he's a real laid back guy. And uh, he was, I was over his house one day and he had a pair of boxing gloves on the wall. And I said, we call him Double D. I said, Double D, what you, what you doing with these, these boxing gloves? He said, man, one time we did a gig in, uh, I forget the name of the city, but George, had to go take care of the business, and he was supposed to come back and get us. And he said, uh, you know, and pay us and everything. Day went by, two days went by. <laughs> he said, three days went by, and they just sitting in the hotel. And they said, on the fourth day, the manager came in and, and, and got everybody to come in his room and, and, and say, yeah, man, it was a big box. It said, George sent this. And, and, the, and the box was full of boxing gloves. And he said, I know y'all pissed, but y'all need to take that out of each other before I get back. <laughs> so that was, 
that was, you know, I, I talked I talked to Daryl a lot, you know, and uh, I asked him why, you know, I said, I said, when are you going back to Funkadelic? And he said, man, okay, you know, all all the new guys and the turnover and uh, different things. So I have been talking to his wife, Caroline, about trying to help us when the film first came out or find some spots and places to do it. And uh, we just could never connect. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I, all of those guys that laid the groundwork you know, for funk are, are really legends. Fred, let's, I want to uh, step you back for a second. Uh, when you mentioned uh, something I didn't expect was that time with the Allman Brothers. Um, there are such virtuosos. Did you get to see them jamming up close firsthand? At uh, at uh, at the Allman Brothers Ranch, we used to go. We used to go out to the ranch, and sometimes they have rehearsals. Uh, J Mo was. Uh, I, I I haven't talked to him in a while, and I need to talk to him because he's getting older, and like. Uh, maybe six months before uh, Greg died, I saw them at the Walnut Creek uh, in in Raleigh, and uh, I'm backstage talking to J Mo, and he get, and I and I, he had on this uh, T-shirt. I said, "Man, that's the baddest T-shirt I've seen." It was celebrating the 50 year or something, and we standing back there, people eating food and stuff, and he took it off and gave it to me. Hmm. I still got it. I, I got a hole in it, but I, I put it I put it up once that happened. And uh there's 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 a there's a tape that I have talking to him. And I was because I was interested on Facebook, I love Google and Facebook. I, I found a picture of him playing drums with Otis Red. And I you know, so I say, J Mo, you know, what's up with you know I used to get with uh, Otis Red, and he would tell me about all these bands and stuff. I can't remember, but it's on tape. And then I was saying, like, boy, you know, Greg, you know, he was like, he said, man, Greg wasn't even in the band. <laughs> he, said, he said he was the last person to get in the band. And I said, man. And he, he, would, tell me, he would tell me different stories, man. And I have to go back and uh, listen to that. But they would let us play. The Alma Brothers had, not the Alma Brothers, but the Roadies had a club. And we would play, we played twice in the Roadies club. Uh, the head guy, Red, that worked with the Alma Brothers. And uh, it was, it was, it was interesting to say the least because uh, they were just so, this is what we do, this is who we are. You know that kind of thing. I never saw him till the uh, 1980s, so I'm just thinking in the early 70s they must have just been fire. It was. I think it was a little uh, less tension. Uh, J-Mo came to see me in Greensboro. He didn't come to see me. He played at UNCG in Greensboro, and uh, a guy that I know I was managing the club then. He said, hey man, this is guy down here that played with this band that wanna that wanna want you, he know you. 
and I couldn't figure out who it was. It was J-Mo and the, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the group, something level, when they broke off and went and, and, and J-Mo and Ike Wiggins' brother was playing bass, not the fifth level or something level, green level or something. You know, and then Greg, Greg, Greg got, uh, got share crazy. And, uh, <laughs> we were playing at the bottom line, uh, Betty, we were playing at the bottom line in New York and Greg and them came in and I asked him what J-Mo was. And he said, Hey, you juices guy. And then there was the guy that played sax at Juicy Carter. I said, yeah, you see he at the hotel, you know, but he was like, I think he was still married to Cheryl, or they had just broken up. He was, he, was a, he was kind of a strange guy, but he could play that organ. So stepping back to when you got first with uh, Betty Davis, Fred, um, she had already had her debut out that came out in 73, right? And that's what they showed you? So um, that had uh, tracks like If I'm in Luck, I Might Get Picked Up. And had you already, had you heard that stuff or at all? or? Never in my life. After they flew me from Lakeland, Florida, to New York, and I think we stopped in Greensboro, and Nikki got on on. So I knew I said, "Well," and so in my mind, I'm thinking like I'm going up here to audition, you know, because I never met Betty. I don't know who, who's running stuff and everything. At that time, it was a guy named Sc Sal Scaltro was her manager. But uh, so I go and we go to the Collingwood Hotel. I think that's what it was. And we were in there for like maybe uh, a week or two. Doing nothing. I still ain't seen Betty. So one day... We go down to this place called uh, SRI, Sound, Sound Recording, some SIR or something. And they had all of the uh, stuff that you need to play. They even had an old sly guitar that they had confiscated because they hadn't paid the bill. But uh, in this room was a mirror, the length of the wall, and a stage. You know, the mirror was in front of you. And we had these songs. And Betty would come in and she'd say, hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you. We don't do this. And she had a tape player, a cassette. And she put the cassette up and she said, okay, this, this is what I'm going to do. Larry, this is your part. And on the tape, she would go, uh, you know, do. <laughs> and that's how we learn songs. Never said a key. Nothing but either. Can you do it another way? Okay, that's fun, you know. That was how we learned songs for that whole for that whole uh, 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 album. But that's the same way we learned. I learned songs for the show. You know, she had put the show together, and at that time she had three girls: uh, Debbie, Elaine. And I always forget her name, another another girl. But so we had to, you know, they had to learn their steps. They looking in the mirror and stuff. Then they had to do their background thing. 
and then we do our thing. And I think we practiced for about a month. And the first gig that we got was um, in Washington, D.C. I think it was Constitution Hall. And uh, I confess up now, I ain't played nothing. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't remember nothing. I was like, <laughs> so I just moved around. But the next time, the next time I got to, I said, man, I got to get on top of my game. And so we were, we, you know, it was pretty good. It really was. What year was that? This would have been 74 or 75. When I first got there, she took us by the record company, um, Just Sunshine Records. And uh, I had no idea that Michael Lane had done Woodstock. I was in Vietnam. And so I'm like, that guy, that guy Michael Lane, I know, know him somewhere. But it was like a couple of years later before I realized that he had done Woodstock. And he, his uh, office was in the Guthrie Weston building. I remember going up there and we met him and everything. And it was just like, it was just like a gig thing. You know, they say, hey, man, y'all going to be in uh, D.C. with uh, Mandrill. Or y'all going to be out here with... Uh, BT Express, you know. So we just gigging. We stand in still, still in Reedsville. A phone call. Nick can get a phone call. Hey man, we got a gig. We go to Greensboro, pick up our tickets, get on the plane, fly to the gig, get off the plane. They pick us up. We go. We always had to go by Betty's room and say hello. We always when we first got there. Leave her room, sound check, back to the hotel, do the gig. Next morning, back in Reedsville that evening. So it was, uh, it was, it was cool. And then we got a, like a little downtime. And I say, hey, man, you know, since we, since we uh, ain't doing nothing, we need to get out. There's a lot of clubs back in the '70s. All the clubs were doing live music. I say we need to, you know, get correct. And so we formed the band Funk House. I named the band Funk House. And uh, that's how we started uh, gigging around locally and, and kind of doing our own thing until Carlos left and went to LA. Well, before that though, our guitarist was, uh, oh, forgive me, Lord, boy died, um, Cordell Dudley. He was from Pittsburgh, and uh, he he was a great cat. He was a great cat. He looked like Al Green, and uh, but he could play that guitar. And uh, he Betty had a thing about the sound. He had a Stratocaster and a Les Paul. She would get her brother to hide the Les Paul because she liked the sound of the Stratocaster. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, uh, but eventually, they, they couldn't see eye to eye. And we had a gig with Lagram 
in Winston-Salem at the state's homecoming. And we were practicing in this in this, in this uh, music store in the back. And I get to rehearsal, and Carlos Morales is there. That's the last, I, the last gig was the last time I ever saw Cordell. I mean, she just fired him like that. And, uh, you know, but we all knew Carlos. He was from down here. I mean, he's from uh, Panama, but he'd been here all his life playing and stuff. And that firing thing, she had a she had a drummer. Uh, before I got there, his name was Sparks. It was, it was either Ted or somebody because Willie, I think Willie played for for Graham. It was his brother. When we got to L.A., we played L.A. and we played San Francisco. And uh, I had gone upstairs. And then somebody came up in the room and said, hey, man, somebody tried to hit Betty in the head with a crowbar. No, a tire iron. Can I see me with it? And so we go down there, and uh, her brother, like he's a road manager, and she always had these uh, saddlebags, and he, he put it up like that. But come to find out it was that drummer. And the reason he had been waiting, yeah, that like two years he waited. She fired him and sent him, she was in New York, and she fired him and sent him back to LA on a bus. <laughs> that, that was, it looks like uh, Teddy Sparks. Is that who it was? Yeah. That's kind of cruel. So it's, it sounds, you're reminding me here, it's sounding like that she uh, maybe took a page out of James Brown's book in terms of. <laughs> how she would communicate some of the songs and also how she would, you know, get rid of some people. Yeah, it was, uh, we eventually, we eventually had a falling out, uh, in, uh, Bogalusa, Louisiana, because we want, she wanted me to sing. She was going to introduce the band. That's what on this album that never came out. She introduced the band. So my thing was, you know, introduce us like we are, what we do and everything. But she wanted me to sing going to a go-go. And I couldn't, I didn't feel that. But looking back on it, I should have done it. But the album never came out anyway, but maybe. But, and so she never Really, I said, Betty, I ain't feeling, I don't want to, but she ain't never feeling either. I said, Betty, I'm not doing that. So the five never got to me. But what happened was when when, the, when they didn't sign, when Ireland didn't sign her again, and Philly International was supposed to, and Teddy Pendergrass quit Blue Notes, and they started freaking out. So. That was off the table. And after I, I had to stay in Bogalusa and do some vocals, and I played a little guitar ply, like a bar chord. And uh, when I came back to North Carolina, it's the last time I saw him. The last time I saw Betty for like 40 years. That was 1970, what? Eight, I want to say. 78. Yeah, 77 or 78. 
I want to talk more about that, Fred, but before um, we, we do, I want to set the chronology straight for viewers and listeners. Um, so that first album, her self-titled one, was in 73. It got some attention. Um, and then uh, she put out They Say I'm Different was her second one, 74. And, um, but the third one is the one that you were on. You were not on the first two, right? No. Yeah. So... What what else can you tell us about Betty Davis in terms of what made her unique and her talent? <clears throat> well, her mother, Larry, the bass player's mother, and Nikki, the drummer's mother, are all sisters. That's how I got into the flow. So their family is really, really, really tight, you know. So when we go, we play in New York, we go to one of their aunt's house up in uh, Long Island. What did she live? I can't remember. But she'd always cook for us. And it would be like we were, we were down south. Every time I went over to Nikki's house, grandmama's house, she'd have food and we would eat and everything. And so, but Betty... Like I said, I grew up with Nikki, elementary school, and, and, and Larry, elementary school, all the way up, and to gigging. Never seen better day in my life until she walked in the studio. And then I began to find out bits and, and things about it. Like her first, her, her very first song was when she wrote for the Chambers Brothers. And then she had a nightclub. I don't know why she got that. But she had a nightclub in New York. And then she was married to Miles. So it was when, I, when that Miles thing came around, I became interested in, you know, just what, uh, just who Betty was. So when we took pictures that they never would let us put on the album cover because they just wanted Betty, uh, they were always by fashion photographers. And that's how she got her start in the fashion industry. So when, when you talk to Betty, it's almost like she's not really talking to you. She's just listening. You know, she don't, she don't say too much. She doesn't say too much. All she do is uh, uh, eat those rice cakes and, uh, and drink tea. So, I wonder if she's so thin. Yeah, I mean, you know, God's most gorgeous legs in the world. <laughs> but uh, she was a very weary person. But she still is. Uh, uh, I talked to her yesterday, and uh, I was asking her about a song that uh, my father is still with me today, Gary an idea that she's supposed to write the lyrics for. And that was before she went to the hospital. And uh, so she said, you know, Fred, I just forget about it every time. <laughs> so I got it over here and with my cassettes and stuff. She said, I'm going to do it. I said, I, I said, just take your time. Don't force it. And, and, and then 
she asked me, did, what did I do for the 4th of July? I said, Betty, I don't celebrate the 4th of July. She said, well, what do, you, what do you do? I say, I celebrate uh, Juneteenth. And she said, what is that? She said, I never heard of that. So we went through a thing, you know, let me explain to her and everything. And then she said, hey, if we're both alive next year, let's celebrate that together. You know, that was, that, out of all the years I've been knowing Betty, that was the deepest thing she ever said to me. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. This, the, when we did Nasty Gal, that was the first time that I had, that was the first time I recorded, but the first time I recorded a whole album. And then I had the same stuff on it. I was featured on different things. and uh, Yeah, you sang on, um, well, at least two of the tracks. Yeah, Nasty Gal and... Uh, I can't even remember what's talking trash. You know more about me than I do. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I can. So, you know, uh, <clears throat> certain things stand out. Betty used to like to go uh, dancing, but she liked the sounds and stuff. And she would take us to all of these clubs and make us dance with her and then dance with some of those people that were there. And she liked to take us to restaurants. She was more like our big sister. So every restaurant she took us to was something, a different experience. She took us to the, where the guys come behind you and playing the, the violins. And then the next restaurant, they playing uh, uh, Mexican music and stuff. And then she took us to the uh, Indian restaurant. I said, I ain't going out no more. <laughs> That's the hottest food. I ever had in my life, but she would. Uh, that that was all she did. New York was like, she just knew it, and she knew where to take us and what to do. And then sometimes we get to talk to Miles, but it was always on the phone. You know, sometimes he would call. He would call in my room. Hey, Betty Gray. She said, "No, man, this is Fred." What's up, man? What, what room Betty Gray in? You always call it Betty Gray. And I give him the numbers and honestly, you know, why don't you come down here, man, the group? And fuck that shit. <laughs> and, uh, well, he was, he was absolutely crazy. But he was cool. I asked Betty, I said, Betty, you know, I was Miles. What kind of man was Miles? She said, you know what? One time, he you know I like jewelry. One time we had an argument and he left. And then I left. And when I come back, I'm ready to go to bed. And I pull back the covers and with nothing but down, like uh, jewelry all in the bed. He just put jewelry all over the bed. <laughs> you know, it was, I don't you know. And I think she got a lot of how you supposed to do things from Miles. But the only difference was she wasn't in demand. Much of demand is Miles, and she was a woman. She tried to run it all by herself at first, you know, 
And she did a good job. She got record deals. She got this and that. You know, she was getting gigs, but then trying to pull it all together to be on the road and to record, you know, and 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 be yourself was uh, was kind of hard weighing on her because hey, if Prince and Betty was in the same era, and he produced her, you'd be talking to a millionaire. I mean, I'd be straight <laughs> because that whole persona, that was what, you know, that, that was the Prince thing. Yeah, yeah. Before Prince. Right. Did, you know, did, did, did she convey to you or anyone that she wanted to provoke and that she was consciously trying to get a reaction from people? Yeah. It was just what she did. I mean, I, okay, I get to, I get to, to the studio. My mother's a minister. And I get to the studio on the album that didn't come out. And she said, Fred, I want you to sing this part with my song. It's a great song. I said, what's the name of it? Uh, Betty, she said, Hoary Angel. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know. And she, but Everything she did had a sexual connotation to it, but she was never, you know, she she was like, when she get off the stage, she go back to the room, you know, it was no after parties, no, she come in one day, she said, hey, Herbie Hancock is having a, a, a birthday party for uh, Blackbird, this is his birthday, and, say, and she said, here's the address, y'all going up, I'm not going. And we went over there and had a ball, you know, or two. <laughs> but uh, let me stop. But, uh, <laughs> and, you know, she was just, it, it, was, it was so strange to be around her and after you come off the stage because she ain't that person that was on the stage.